From Next47, this is the AI Unveiled podcast with me, Gaurav Kota. In this episode, I'm speaking with Tony Beltramelli, the co-founder and CEO of Wizard, a product design and ideation tool with over 2 million users. And that's Wizard, U-I-Z-A-R-D. Tony believes great design is increasingly important to build successful products. And that there aren't enough designers out there. He wants to leverage AI so that product managers and non-designers can be an integral part of the UX and creative process. In this episode, we discuss why it took them a couple of years to launch the initial product, the core capabilities, and how they're needing to constantly evolve their technology to take advantage of better foundation models. We also discuss how Wizard tackles AI tourism, where a large number of users may sign up on the appeal of a next-gen solution, but then may churn away quickly. This is a fun episode with many interesting insights on building and scaling an AI-first solution. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the AI Unveiled podcast. Today, I'm joined by Tony Beltramelli, the co-founder and CEO of Wizard. Tony, welcome. Hi, Gaurav. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, to start off, for those that may not know, can you give us a brief summary of what Wizard does? Yeah, of course. Wizard is a design tool powered by AI. So we help product teams uh, from startups all the way to Fortune 500 companies to design products. So that's like helping them with wireframing, mockup, prototyping, and, and UI design in general. Awesome. And just to be clear, which persona do you support? Are you supporting mainly the designers or the product managers or other personas? Most of our customers are actually non-designers, uh, which they, you know, we would typically help product managers, um, people that are close to the customers, uh, people that are close to the business, and they typically need to do design as part of their work, but typically don't have the skill set to use one of the complex design tools uh, that designers are using. Yeah, and I can tell you, I definitely fall into that category. So I generally do either wireframes on paper, use something like Snagit. So AI that can help me kind of communicate my thoughts, if not design, uh, is certainly something that I've been using Wizard and it's definitely been helping. Uh, before we go any further, I, you know, one thing you know, I'd love to understand is the founding story, right? Um, what compelled you to go on this journey? When did you get started? Um, and what was that starting up process like? Oh, that's a, a few years ago now. So we started in 2018, um, and the core idea at the time was, can we actually use AI and machine learning to automate part of the tedious process for designing and developing software? And that was, you know, 2018, long before the Gen AI frenzy. And so we were trying to just, you know, turn images into code and turn ideation into design that people could could test, really. Um, and so we built the research paper, uh, got some early traction, and then tried to just build a company around some of this you know, underlying research. Amazing. Um, not too many founders I talked to have started with a research paper. So can you elaborate a little bit on, you said you, we built the research paper. What was that research paper about? Was that while you were still in university? Uh, provide us some more context. Yeah, of course. So. As I mentioned, so 2018, I was one year out of grad school, working full-time as a data scientist. Um, and I didn't find anything better than uh, do the, doing machi machine learning research as a hobby. You know, some people play tennis, <laughs> some people go, uh, go, go skiing. I, I was doing machine learning research um, in my weekends. And this is kind of how it started. One of my side projects 
started to get traction um, after I published a paper online and submitted a few demo videos. And people started to email me, hey, this is cool. When can I use this tech? And that tech in question was something called Pix2Code, which was a proof of concept using computer vision to turn screenshots of interfaces into front-end code. And that's kind of like how the company started, really. And we'll talk more about some of your capabilities, but I believe that's still one of the important capabilities of turning screenshots into pixels that then you can do more and more stuff with. You said you started the company in 2018. Um, I believe you took a little bit of time to launch, a little bit like, you know, for example, Figma did. Um, give us a little bit of like, how long did it take for you to even get to an alpha and beta? And, and maybe if you can, today, where are you in terms of whatever you're comfortable sharing in terms of number of users or usage or any other pattern? It's funny you mentioned Figma because it's almost day to day, the same time between inception and launching the product. Uh, and for them, for Figma, it was all about building a design tool online, which was had never done, been done before. And for us, it was building a an AI design assistant, which, which had, hasn't been done before. So it took a while indeed. Um, so inception in 2018, and then we launched the alpha uh, probably 12 months later. Um, and then it quickly became a beta where we onboarded people by batches of users. So at the time we, we were benefiting from a lot of word of mouth, which means that a lot of people were signing up to our, to our product uh, to get early access. And so whenever we had the beta, we could easily invite batches of users every week, uh, sh you know, give them access to the product and learn from those early kind of like adopters and early use cases. Um, and then we launched the product out of private beta in February 2021. So almost three and a half years from inception to being comfortable enough to launch this product for, for prime time. And in terms of traction to answer the last, pa the last part of your question, uh, we're currently serving 2.2 million, 2 .2 million users and teams uh, from all around the world, and the revenue currently is a thousand percent year-over-year growth from the same time last year. So this year has been insane in terms of uh, of growth. Amazing. Well, congratulations on that traction. I sometimes find it funny when people say thousand percent without giving the base number, but I respect the fact that you <laughs> gave actual numbers for the number of users, 2.2 million. I think when we spoke a few weeks ago, it was a little bit lower than that. So good job on that continued traction. I'm going to go a bit off script here because, you know, you said from alpha to beta, it took quite some time. What gave you the conviction that you were going in the right direction? And what type of feedback loops did you build, you know, pre-getting enough users to start using the product to make sure that at least directionally, you know, you're on the right path, your company's on the right path? So, what you know, one thing is building a minimal viable product. But in our case, we needed to build a minimum viable AI. Like, and it was hard for us to define before getting usage to know what was minimal viable was for our core AI models. And ultimately it was all about seeing how people were using it, collecting their feedback. And it's not just something you could measure. You also had to get their emotional reaction, qualitative reaction to the AI models. Um, so that's also part of the reason why it, it just took a while to be able to build the right methods to get conviction that the AI models would, was good enough to, to drive value uh, and ultimately solve people's problems. Yeah, and, 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 and let me know if I'm not paraphrasing correctly, but in a way, your problem statement was fairly clear. It was just, can the solution meet the demands of what your customers are needing? Because is the AI accurate enough that took a while? So at least you kind of knew the path. A lot of times, 
founders I speak to are just trying to figure out what they're trying to solve, and that takes a while. Where in your case, it was about the maturity of the AI getting to that accuracy. Is, is that a good way to kind of frame it? And that may have made things a little bit easier in terms of feeling the confidence that you're moving in the right direction. Well, I think you do have a point, which is that we were pretty confident about the product we were trying to build. So, to, you know, in... If you look at the product market fit equation, it was mostly focused on the product side of that equation. But to be fair, we also had to do some tweaking on the market side of the product market fit equation, because in the early days, which is not something I mentioned, we thought this technology would mostly be useful for developers and designers. And it's only for the beta process that we realized people getting the most value were everybody else in the product team, the, the product manager, the you know the CEO, the founders, the entrepreneur, the marketing teams, and ultimately we didn't force this before getting you know getting the product to market and, and getting customer feedback. Yeah, that's an amazing point. Um, and you know, and again, in hindsight, twenty twenty, you know, AI really does help with that zero to one initial iteration journey. So it kind of makes sense that you cater to the zero to one audience in this case. But Tony, I have so many more questions to ask you in terms of kind of your solution set, the AI, and especially in today's evolving landscape of the foundational matters. But I'm going to hold off on that for a second um, and then kind of move to the big picture, right? Um, what is your vision of what the product design process will look like, say, I don't know, five years from now? So ultimately, I think, you know, we, we you, you probably know this better than me uh, as a venture capital capitalist, but like every company is a software company today. Everybody needs to build software. Um, and consumers are increasingly picky on the design of the software. And design is not going anywhere in terms of like how significantly strategic it is to the success of companies and products. But the challenge is that there are, first of all, there's not enough designers around to be able to do the work. There's like, I think less than 1% of people working in tech that are trained professional designers. And so that's already you know, one challenge. Um, and one of the aspects why we believe what we're building could be greatly valuable uh, in the long run. Um, but the second aspect is also the fact that AI can really enable more people to express themselves and basically like lower the playing field in order to compensate for, for the fact that there's not enough designers. So the way we perceive the future is that although we've seen a maturing of software engineering as a discipline since the early days of the internet, where we, you know, we saw Program programmers becoming front-end developers, back-end developers, database developers, iOS developers, we expect that in five years' time, we'll see the same specialization on the design side of things, where we'll see very specialized domain experts using design as a tool to solve problems. And some of these people will be coming from a traditional design training, but some of them will be literally domain experts that will do design you know, as you know, yet another tool in a, in a tool, set, tool set to be able to create value. So what I'm saying is that we believe that in five years' time, there will be more people doing design that currently just aren't thinking of themselves as designers. The other is also to enable existing designers to communicate better with their non-designers colleagues, which is a, a huge problem that we're currently solving for our customers. Um, because ultimately, defining intent is hard. And so if as a, let's say, a product manager, you have a vision on what needs to be improved to serve your customers better on a given product, the likelihood that someone will perfectly encapsulate your vision and you know come back with exactly what you have in mind is very low. The reality is a lot of iteration are going to happen. And our job 
by leveraging the uh, enabling these non-designers to also do design is to reduce the amount the amount of iteration and increase the amount of communication that can happen between designers and non-designers so it's not just about enabling more people to the design but also like improving the current teams that are both designers and and non-designers alike the collaboration if i were to ask you where do you think ai will play a, a larger role from the 0 to 1 create n number of you know initial prototypes to no, that's number 1 number 2 is pixel perfection make me give me superpowers and number 3 is take me from pixel to code right you have any assessment of where ai do you think will be the most transformative in terms of those kind of three uh you know uh steps of the kind of design process i think it will be it will be contributing to to all three but uh, you know in different different timeline um today is really like the ideation phase um some of those large language models like chatgpt or even you know wizard are suffering from what researchers call hallucination and hallucination if you are working in uh banking or trying to predict you know very granular data is a huge problem but in creative application like design is not a is not a bug it's a feature uh, because hallucination enables you as a user to expand the amount of idea you can explore that you might not have even thought of as uh, yourself so ideation innovation idea exploration is perfect for ai today now tomorrow i think it will take some time but we'll get to the moment where it can really help to your point uh you know pixel perfect type of uh, of output that can almost be delivered as as is but it will take a while to get there and eventually maybe um and maybe I'm too pessimistic by saying a decade but I do believe that it will probably take a solid decade before we get to the point where we can accurately enable you know developer to focus exclusively on implementing business logic and let ai take care of the UI front end part of 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 the of the problem. Um but it's a pretty complex problem. UI is UI development is a lot more complex than people think and that's why I believe it will easily take a decade before this part is fully automated. Yeah and and in that part I think one angle is coming from the design to code the other one is the code copilot so there are a lot of moving pieces there. So let's see Absolutely. about the decade it may it may and you know, one of those things is you asymptote at 90% and you might find somewhere where we make progress and you don't get to the 100% but those are really good points um let's move to the state of play today um what are the few use cases that you just think are extremely inefficient today that you believe the ui platform is or can in the near term significantly improve well so if you are let's say let's say you're a product manager um at um a consumer tech company and you you know maybe you have an app for booking uh, ride sharing um if you're if you're a pm whose sole mission is to improve the amount of people that actually successfully sign up successfully book their first ride uh and you know uh, continue to, to use the product for the first week you're going to do a lot of iteration this is going to be like a constant ab testing fine tuning of the experience and that means you're going to do a lot of design a lot of prototyping a lot of iteration and today that would mean that you will need to rely heavily on a design team which most of the time is already busy with other teams other project other other focus and so the challenge is that is not uncommon to hear that uh, a product manager or product team will need to wait weeks to get a proposal back from from the from, from the design team and this is really like the pain point we're trying to solve today how can we enable these teams to do prototyping themselves 
um, so that they can actually iterate with their um, either you know user testing uh, at the user testing phase or the prospective customers before uh, involving the design team, which is already like you know underwater for the most part because there's just so much design needs all, all across the organization. Yeah, yeah. So just a lot more experimentation. You talked about user testing and user feedback without involving the design team. How does that happen? Is it qualitative? Is it about creating prototypes and not in the production code that you're getting feedback on? Can you elaborate on that user feedback part of what you just mentioned, allowing product teams to kind of experiment a lot faster and a lot more? So a lot of product teams are doing research, like user research, and this actually even gave the you know give give rise to a, a new job category, probably like probably already 10 years ago now, where you have the like, user researcher that are typically working close to designers and product teams, but aren't trained designers per se. And these people, to your point, are making user testing all the time. They are interviewing customers, um, um, you know, sending them prototypes to test, collecting, collecting feedback, and trying to uncover how to solve their problem better. So that's the specific aspect I was mentioning earlier, that doing user research doesn't always need to require a UI designer, right? Um, if, if you can enable you, you researchers and product teams to do prototyping themselves. Amazing. Uh, let's kind of jump into uh, the platform. Uh, can you just highlight some of the key capabilities and probably, you know, given it's an AI-based platform, the AI capabilities that are in the wizard platform today? We have quite a bunch uh, of uh, AI tool in our suite. <laughs> the most popular um, are uh, something we call Auto Designer, which is enabling customers to type out their project in plain English, and it will generate a full interactive prototype of you know five to six screens. So you really go from just a text prompt to a full experience that you can actually just test and play with within within seconds. Um, and of course, this feature also enables people to gener generate individual screens uh, and basically you know add uh, and and co-create with this like AI copilot assistant uh, inside of our editor. Another really popular feature is to be able to import screenshots. And so to your, our example earlier, if you are a product manager at a consumer tech company, you probably already have a software product that you want to improve. And maybe you don't have access to the Adobe or Figma file, but you can take a screenshot. And typically we'll see people taking screenshots, putting in a PowerPoint and you know writing feedback this way. Well, in our platform, we enable you to import a screenshot and it will use uh, computer vision and AI to take this flat image and turn it into a fully editable design that you can actually just then you know change, modify the buttons, modify the placement completely automatically. Um, so that's the second most popular AI features. And the last one is our uh, style generator. So let's say you've created something as a PM. You're not really proud of how it looks, but you like the experience. So you could just type out, "Hey, this is great, but please make, please make it make it look like uh, like the Twitter app, uh, or make it more like a dark modern tech uh, techie, and then we'll just change the style automatically for you, and it will look like really polished, even though it it was pretty ugly to begin with." Uh, that's probably the third most popular feature uh, at the moment. Man, as a product manager for over a decade, those are really powerful. I just want to say, I I I can't even tell you. I've probably spent hundreds of hours taking a screenshot. And because it's flat, <laughs> right? There are no components. I can't just edit a font or I can't just move this from here to there easily. So then kind of taking, you know, just these very kind of um, broad-based 
cut, copy, etc. And if that could be unflattened with some layers or components, and which is exactly what you're doing, oh my God, that would have saved me a ton of time. Um, and the auto designer uh, seems really cool. And you just launched 1.5, where I think you went from, you know, you, you kind of just type what it is in the beginning and you get something, but two, then it can be a constant iterative process for the buy screen process. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what that process looks like? Yeah, so now since uh, to your point, like since we launched the 1.5 iteration, which is both like a, a different, like an improved model, the un underlying model uh, has improved, but we also brought the auto designer chat, so to say, like in the center of the editor through which people design project in our platform. So that means that, you know, if you want to create by hand, you can just go ahead and drag and drop components the way you, you, you would do in PowerPoint or Google Slide. But at any moment, you can just like start asking this assistant for help designing a new screens or changing the style of the colors or, you know, creating images, generating images for, uh, for, for content. So it's really like enabling people to have this AI assistant at their finger, finger, fingerprint whenever they are designing um, a new product. At a high level, um, how are you, are your models relying on your product usage data at all? Are they completely relying on public information? How do you inform the models at the highest level? So in the early days, um, you know, for most AI company, well, before uh, before ChatGPT was available as an API, but before that you had to, it was a chicken and egg problem, which is you needed to have enough data to train the base model, but in order to have enough data, you needed to have users, but you wouldn't have enough users if you don't have data to build the first model. So in early days, we literally build our own um, data generator um, to really like get started, to go from zero to one. And over time, we were um, and we were fine tuning based off uh, our early adopters data. So we we had customers with which we had like really good relationship, and we would fine tune the models on the data, um, which enabled the, the models to really improve significantly over time. And, and this is, this is still pretty much how things are done today. There are uh, users. Uh, that uh, that are sharing the data with us, and also like all our free users um, are, you know, we 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 fine tune our models on some of their of their user data as well over time. Let's uh, dive into the tech stack. What what models do you use? Um, you know, are you using uh, you know ChatGPT? Are you using something else? And and maybe if you will, you started in 2018, right? And so you were building before this recent phenomenon, right? Like, so have there have been any significant changes to your approach um, over the last 6, 12, 18 months? So actually, most of the models that we have in production today are still models for which, you know, that were entirely built by our team from scratch. Um, you know, really like even the model architecture was was built by our team through, uh, through R&D and uh, empirical, painful experimentation. Um, and... We do have, however, two models now that are uh, partly powered by OpenAI. One of them is Auto Designer that I just mentioned. Uh, we use OpenAI for gener generating text or generating like a semantic tokens from the initial user prompt. Um, and then we also have fine-tune um, our own version of stable diffusion for image generation, uh, which is a fantastic model for creating content. Uh, but Apart from these two, you know, everything else is basically powered by uh, by our own tech, um, all the way down to uh, to the metal, so to say. <laughs> yeah, and that makes sense, right? So you're using kind of ChatGPT for understanding and processing the text. You're using, you know, some of the tech text to image models to kind of, you know, add visuals. But the core logic of hey, 
turn a screenshot into components is a little bit more you know, deterministic versus generative. And that's why you built that empirical data that you're leveraging. Yeah, yeah exactly. So in a way, we, we, our models are the best in the class for doing design work. And then we would plug, you know, chat GPT for text, and then we plug stable diffusion for images. But ultimately, everything design related is, you know, to your point, is its own tech, because this is what it's, it's been trained to do since 2018. So it's pretty good at it. I'm seeing that, you know, um, mature companies like yours are using um, multiple models, but not just using multiple models, almost have this logic where, okay, step one, is this part of the uh, thing? Some people use vector databases. Some people are using different kind of processing. And then they're kind of moving through the stack and just applying, you know, specific models, some proprietary, some off the shelf, uh, based on the specific use case and just making sure the product experience and the tech architecture is so that it all flows together. Um, would it be fairly easy in your tech architecture to kind of replace a certain model, especially like chat GPT? Have you kind of built that with in mind? Everything we build is, is really like, a microservice architecture, even in, in the even the AI kind of tech is microservice based. So it's super easy to just, you know, um, change the models for something else. Um, and actually, that's something we we, we we do on a regular basis. But whenever our team made some progress in a given area, and we want to just swap the visual model for a screenshot scanner, for example, then we can easily swap this, see how it actually performs in, in production and then swap it back if it doesn't perform, uh, you know, according to expectation. So it's very modular, which means that whenever there is a new cool tech that's uh, that we can plug into, we can do this in a matter of, of a few hours. Awesome. And you talked about how when you went from alpha to beta, you took some time to make sure that the AI models were good enough, right? Um, and you, you talked about that process. But you're constantly innovating. You're constantly upgrading the models, expanding the use cases. Now that you're in production with 2.2 million users, how do you make that decision that something new that you've introduced, a model that you swapped out, is good enough, a high enough quality for that use case? How do you figure that out before you launch? And then how do you track that after you launch? That's a good, great question and still something we are always improving on. That's a constant uh, iteration, not just on the model, but iterating on the method we use to improve the models. Um, and we, we are strong believers in human in the loop to make sure that we uh, you know we ensure quality uh, in the in the capability that we ship. And so ultimately, there's three phases. One, which is all about like measured performance. So our team, whenever they modify, improve the models, will typically measure all the, good, the things you would expect from a, from a machine learning perspective. Accuracy, precision, recall, error rate but, uh, on the validation set. And a validation set is really like created data set that our AI team use all the time for different problems. Once it's good enough from the, you know, the measured performance standpoint will do a perceived performance standpoint, which is like, even though the score are good, what we've seen over time is that sometimes the experience of using that better model is not as, is actually doesn't seem as an improvement for the end user. So we'll run this in our dev development environment for a week or two, and then it will be our team, because we use our own product, uh, our team will use these new models and, and we'll see whether it's actually better in practice um, than the previous version. And if that's the case, then we'll ship uh, we'll ship the models to production, and then uh, we'll track user feedback to make sure that you know it's still uh, on par, but also better than than the last versions. And to do this, if you use, if if people are using our, our, our platform, if you use some of the AI features, sometimes you will be asked to give a thumb up or a thumb down to what you've been able to generate it or create, and that basically give us an insight of like, okay, are we doing better than last month or did we actually you know made 
slightly worse prediction than last month. And that's, you know, a constant iteration um, um, and, and giving us signal in real time to make sure that we are not breaking things that were, uh, you know, working better uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so three levels. One, you have a more, you know, um, more mathematical ground truth that you can compare the new model to. Second, you dog food the quality of the product internally before you launch. And then you're constantly probably looking at product analytics data, but also, um, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. So the more kind of qualitative feedback. AI computation is costly, right? It uh, requires hardware or, you know, at least hardware as a service. And you have a product-led motion, right? So you do have a corpus of free users. How do you balance? What do the cost considerations look like to you, right? Is that an issue? How do you balance it? How do you think about it? Honestly, after speaking with so many AI, like very new AI first company and realizing how much they struggle with cost optimization, I'm really happy that we, you know, we build our tech ourselves before plugging in into an API, because that means that yeah. we can optimize so much of the infrastructure and make sure that we can actually serve our AI models as cheaply as possible while, you know, maintaining like high level, high performance. Um, so it's not something we've had an issue, to be honest with you, because we we build on stack and that gives us so much granularity for optimizing uh, and serving the best models uh, at, at a lower cost. Um, but, you know, we can definitely see today already that the part of our tech which integrates with, uh, with OpenAI is very hard to optimize because ultimately, you know, whatever OpenAI decides to charge you is, is what your baseline is going to be. Uh, so <laughs> um, I, I'm glad we have most of our models self-serve, basically. Yeah, you have a lot more control, as you said. Uh, that's uh, that's great to hear. Um, so we, you know, when we spoke earlier, you had mentioned something that really um, caught my attention on how the launch of ChatGPT not only caused you to maybe add more capabilities and introduce them in, in some aspects, but it almost, you know, increased your demand overall because people were thinking about AI-based product design a lot more. Can you elaborate a little bit on kind of what you saw what did you do to be in that position, right? Um, and then once you realized there was some tailwind, how did that impact your product design or go-to-market or any other kind of process uh, as you were thinking about running the business? The launch of ChatGPG has been like really like an amazing tailwind for us. Um, and so thank you, OpenAI, for launching this. <laughs> so the reason, the, the way it really helped us is in market education. And although we've been around for a while, you know, and we've been advocating for AI-powered design, it takes a while to educate a market, right? And anybody, you know, no one should ever, would ever tell you that if your startup requires educating the market, this is not going to be a success because it's really hard to do. And so because we've had bet on this AI-first design language for a while, we, we really like had started to rank on content and SEO on these key terms. And so when OpenAI launched ChatGPT, Suddenly, all uh -huh. of a sudden, people started to Google a solution for which we already had, you know, product ready to use. So amazing tailwind, we could capture this demand, serve people right away. Um, so yeah, thank you, OpenAI, for launching ChatGPT and ed educating the market for us. Uh, that's been great. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. So you're already high ranking on the things that became a highly searched uh, set of keywords, uh, which is great. And you know, I, I talk, I, I talk and think a lot about kind of companies that have been seeded in the last six to nine months to, you know, build something awesome based on, uh, you know, the, some of the new technological advancements. 
but also then companies that were either building their own AI models or have no AI, but just built the workflow UX. And this is one great example of by being in the business for longer, you've got a lot of the foundations. In your case, it was content for this particular example that kind of helped you skyrocket in your SEO and, and the top of the funnel. But but actually, that's a good point because I think it's really hard sometimes for founders to understand how SEO can help in the long run. SEO never work, you know, from one week to another. It's a long-term play. And ultimately, maybe it was a, play, a bet that would have never worked, right? It worked in this case because eventually OpenAI launched ChatGPT. So we, of course, always had the assumption that AI was go going to become a big thing. And so I'm glad we are invested in SEO before it even were you know, even made sense. So probably like a good uh, learning for other founders, like if you're doing something extremely specific and you think you're going to be one of the best at it, maybe invest in SEO uh, earlier than you think uh, you might need it. Because if you know what the vision of the world is or you have a point of view, it doesn't not just inform your product, it's probably informing other aspects, in this case, content, right? That you didn't know a lot of the details, but you had a clear vision of the world starting from probably even before you started Wizard with the research papers and all, and you you kind of started out of passion building stuff for that, which is which is great. Now, that does help your top of the funnel. Um, you've got 2.2 million users, as you said. Um, you know, I have... There, there can be a tendency for AI-first startups, which you now are, to have a lot of excitement and a lot of the users sign up, but not stay, right? Because that excitement wears off or the novelty wears off. And I think there was a coin term I, I heard called AI tourism. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that you have that, uh, but, you know, do you? And, and if so, how do you kind of counter that? And how do you think about it? Yeah, AI tourism is definitely something I've chatted a lot with uh, founders in, in a similar, um, you know, space. And actually, there was an interesting paper by, well, paper, blog post by um, Sequoia where, like, if, that they released a few weeks ago called Generative AI Act 2. And they were comparing the one-month retention for incumbent. So, like, think of, like, the YouTube, Instagram, Duolingo, and then the uh, one-month retention for AI-first company, like ChatGPT, Runway ML, and so on. And they found that for the incumbent, the median one-month retention was at 63%, while AI first company was at 42%. So quite a big difference to your point. Like a lot of AI tourism, uh, people just being curious and, and, and exploring what's out there, but not really like, uh, you know, not sticking around because there was no value for them, or maybe not sticking around because the product, the AI is not good enough for for what they expected, right? Um, so And we see this at Wizard as well. Like if we look at our general population, our one month retention is at 66%. Uh, that includes all the tourism. If you remove the tourists and you focus exclusively on prosumer working in teams, that one month retention go all the way up to 88%. So, you know, huge difference between those two different categories of users. And you said if we remove the tourists, that that implies that you know who the tourists are, not just because they're dropping <laughs> yeah. off. Like, well, what, what's, what are the characteristics of an AI tourist? Yeah, so we had we had to find a way to distinguish between these users, right? And of course, you can say that everybody that doesn't retain after one month is a, is a tourist, but you, you, you're lying to yourself, right? Because you might have also have legitimate users that, that don't stick around. So we ask people when they sign up to a product, whether they are here for work or whether they are just here for, you know, personal project exploration and so on. And that's kind of like the signal we use to know whether they are tourists or hobbyists uh, rather than professional users. But there could be some people that are in your ICP, they are product managers, right? And they love the idea of a uh, AI 
tool to help them. But then once they get into it, after that, that next step is where they get stuck because they don't have the workflows or the integrations, et cetera, right? It's so when you look at your roadmap at over the next, I don't know, six months, nine months, at a high level, right? Um, um, what percentage of your roadmap is AI-related capabilities versus non-AI workflow, you know, team collaboration, et cetera, just at a high level so we get a sense of it? I would say it's 50-50 at this point. Um, and to your point, like the growth that we've experienced over the past nine months has been so insane that now we are thinking of, of extending the core product offering to better serve larger teams and large organizations. Um, and that means that, you know, roadmap now is basically split between AI-related improvement, 50%, and workflow collaboration-related improvement, another 50%. That's really interesting. So uh, AI first company like yours has 50% non-AI related, you know, features or capabilities <laughs> in the roadmap, which which to me, frankly, is it only makes sense. It's really, really important to do if you're trying to tackle the AI tourism uh, aspect. Um, look, you've dropped a lot of insights. Thank you for that. Um, just maybe to wrap things up, you know, any tips to our audience or any, you know, big learnings that you want to share uh, on on what it takes to kind of build a company that has a thousand percent revenue growth and two point two million users in a space influenced by AI. Key learnings for me, for me as a technical founder, is that first of all, we waited way too long to charge customers, and you know, charging customers, introducing pricing is just such an amazing way to to actually retain people that really care and ultimately help you shape the product much more efficiently than just listening to everyone. Um, the second of all is, you know, speaking to customers. If you are a technical founder like me, you probably just want to be coding all day, building product all day, and not speak with customers. Well, it turns out that's not how you can build a company. Um, and so, yeah, speaking with customers is something we've also, in retrospect, waited way too long. Um, and investing in distribution uh, as well. You know, again, if you are a naive first-time founder like I was a, a few years ago, you think like, oh, we're going to build a cool product and people will come. Well, it turns out that's not how the world works either. You probably need to think about distribution at the same time as you think about building the core product. Uh, and if you do this in parallel, you're going to learn faster because you're going to have more people to test your product. And ultimately, you also set up yourself for long-term success because you already start building this you know, flywheel uh, of distribution and user acquisition. So that's probably business three. Yeah. Yeah. Even the greatest product is of no use if you don't have any users. Um, you talked about SEO for distribution. I want need to double click on this because it's really, really, really important. It's a great point. What else did have you done in terms of distribution beyond SEO? We tried a lot of different things. Obviously, social media uh, has been a, a, a massive channel for us. And the reason for this is our product is really visual. And the first time people experience some of the AI magic, they're like, whoa, I got to make a screen recording and share this on social. And so we try to nurture this intrinsic willingness to share through you know social media community management and so on which has worked great um, we've also experimented with with partnership you know there is a lot of tools that can benefit from the wizard workflow user journey type of things um, or for example in the early days we had a lot of startups as early adopters so shouldn't we partner up with a few incubators or startup accelerators for example uh, so we, we try a lot of different things, but ultimately what really works for us, it still works today, is everything with regard to accelerating word of mouth. So content, SEO, social media, and again, making sure that we, we have the best product out there because if the product is good, 
you don't need to tell people to talk about it. They will do it themselves. And and that's probably the best marketing of all. That's amazing. And, and you know, the, the, the bias towards channels and methodologies have a compounding effect is is coming through in the, in the things that you mentioned. Uh, this has been fantastic, Tony. Thank you. Um, I w- before I let you go, I just want to ask you one thing not related to product design or wizard, but um, what uh, generative AI use cases are you most excited about, of course, outside of product design? All of them. Honestly, like I think that we are living <laughs> in the, you know, it, it, I, I know it sounds really cliche and we probably heard oh, heard about that all the time when we go on, on Twitter X or, or whatever. It's really like a, it feels, another, again, I'm, I'm probably too young to have experienced the full internet revolution, but it feels that way in terms of like how much we are able to just make things that wouldn't be possible, possible. There's just so much amazing innovation happening. You know, people are, are going to soon be able to create movies, uh, music, uh, full-blown professional production w- with just a laptop. And that's just insane. Um, so I'm just super excited to see how how this, you know, evolve. And first and foremost as well, how is this going to help us solve the greatest challenge of our lifetime? Climate change, um, you know, scientific research, drug discovery. Just, just so much thing that we still haven't figured out. We don't even understand how the world works, the nature of reality and so on. And hopefully AI can just become this amazing new tool helping us figure out how the world works and how we can actually make uh, amazing discoveries to to solve our, our greatest problems. So I, I'm pretty excited about uh, the current AI revolution, uh, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, so am I. And that's a great place to wrap things up. Tony, this has been fantastic. Thank you for providing your wisdom. And it's just been a great conversation. Thank you for, uh, for your time here on this podcast. Thanks for having me, Gaurav. <laughs> <laughs>